And so to be aware of these trends, I think, and to, to, to listen to the, the narrative of scripture and to always take account of the context to which we receive scripture is, uh, is a vital, I think, uh, again, a, a, a vital uh, compass for us so that we can know where true north rests and we can always find our way out of the woods if we find ourselves in the woods of theological liberalism, uh, either on purpose or by accident, we can find our way out. And in that respect, I think Dr. Allen's chapter, I think is immense, immensely useful. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same sign-up link or simply email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Hello, everyone. Once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And we are on our Covenant Theology Promises and Fulfillments episode number 20. This is from chapter 20 in the Covenant Theology book by our good friends at Crossway. And again, it's written by faculty from Reformed Theological Seminary. And this particular chapter called Covenant in Recent Theology is written by Dr. Michael Allen. But we're having a very special guest helping us walk through this chapter, a repeat guest, Dr. John Fesco, Dr. J.V. Fesco. He's going to help us with this chapter. So we're very grateful for that. And this chapter in particular is the final chapter in part two historical theology within the book. And just as a reminder, guys, on the show notes, if you click on the the episode, you can find the show notes. There's a link to Crossway. That's the publisher of this book. You can purchase this book for yourself. You can walk through it with us and enjoy that. You can also find a couple of links to find a Reformed church near you. If you're looking for a church to call home and be a member of, look at that. You can find, there's a church finder. We can find one as close to you as possible and guide you to that church, as well as a link to the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Now that's a link. You're going to find other like-minded podcasts out there. If you enjoy our show and our content, there's other good podcasts out there that are Reformed-based. So let's jump in and have Peter further introduce our good friend, Dr. Fesco. Yeah, I hope you guys remember our episode with him. It was about it about a couple months ago. We interviewed him a little, little less than a year ago, but he's professor mm-hmm. of systematic and historical theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, and more specifically, the Harriet Barber, which I think is a new title or a relatively new title for him at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, where he's taught for a couple years after teaching at uh, the school that I go to right now, but we're super excited to have, and I was going to make a joke earlier that we only have people on the show with Twitter accounts. And I don't think Mike Allen has a Twitter account. So thanks for coming on Dr. Fesco. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be back with you guys. I hope you guys are both doing well. We are. Yeah. And extra bonus points. We were talking about this before we hit record that he he is a fellow CrossFitter. (laughs) That's right. saw his his comments on, on Murph and Dr. Van Pelt was the one that didn't reply with his score. And Dr. Fesco did. That's right. I don't think, I don't think Dr. Van Pelt knows he has a Twitter account. Sometimes <laughs> it kind of, kind of stays there in the Twitter first every once in a while. Yeah, no, we had fun with it though. So good stuff. Good stuff. And Dr. Fesco, your uh, episode we did with you covenant of works, like Peter said, it was back, I think back in February. Yeah. Is, 
is one of the more popular episodes we've had. Yeah, I think it's so. still top three or top four right now for us. Mm-hmm. So even yeah, even all these months after, it's still beating some of the some of the bigger uh, bigger episodes we've had. So yeah, people mm-hmm. are people are hungry for more covenant theology and kind of a consistent view of scripture. So we're super excited to talk about this chapter and some other stuff later on too. Great. Well, let's uh, we can we can let it rip and uh, it always it always makes me feel much better and it raises my personal self esteem when. Uh, my podcast is the one that gets the most downloads. Yeah, so, you, know, you can hey. you could have a yeah. It's uh we've had Dr. Waters on before. It's yeah. you can walk by him on campus. Is like beat you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, because it's it's all about the likes. <laughs> it's all about oh, the yeah. likes, exactly. Yeah, we'll we'll wait for um when so when this episode comes out, it'll have been a couple of weeks. We'll see how Dr. Duncan's does, and maybe you'll still be him too. No, I don't want to beat the boss. Gotta, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's if maybe if you beat him, is like, man, you're you're uh, we have another position for you, not at the seminary, it's somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. It's in food services for the seminary. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah. Well, Nick, I don't know if you want to open up just broad-based questions on this on this uh, on this chapter. We know that you didn't write this, but we're we're super excited to have you on for this chapter. Oh, thanks. Sure, glad to be with you. Yeah, I mean, just to open up the conversation on it. I'll be real humble and honest, and I think we all agree it's a, it's a pretty dense chapter. Yeah, uh, pretty philosophical, pretty thick into the trenches with historical theology, where you know retracing some things, but also reflecting philosophically where we are today on some things. So there's a lot of layers. There's a lot of different people. And some people he mentions in this chapter that we know very well. We've had on the show, we've met in person, Dr. Michael Horton. So shout out to Dr. Horton. Um, and he's a very important person right now in recent uh, covenant theology. Um, but with that said, Dr. Fesco, I, I don't really know how to start this off other than saying maybe your opening comments on it. And you could just kind of start us off. Like, what did you think of this chapter? Yeah, lay of the land. What's yeah? What's what's yeah. this chapter all about? Yeah, the chapter is about covenant in recent theology, and Dr. Allen goes into exploring uh, how much, or conversely, how little the doctrine of the covenants has featured in you know twentieth century uh, theology, not just in the Reformed tradition, uh, but more broadly whether it's in the broader Protestant tradition, say with figures such as Wolfhart Pannenberg uh, or uh, more recent uh, theological expressions coming from uh, you know, people like uh, Peter Hodgson and, and, and Robert King and, uh, and Catherine uh, Sonderager and others. Uh, and so it, in that sense, it's a very broad sweeping uh, chapter that, yeah. that covers a lot of ground. And uh, as you said, you know, in the one sense, it's um, it's a thick chapter, a dense chapter in certain places, but uh, you know, Dr. Allen does a, a spectacular job of uh, unpacking the the content that's there and explaining these things, uh, these various trends that are going on. Yeah. So maybe um, so some of the things that are talked about in this, and one of the very first things talked about was this thing, kind of an overarching understanding of how people see scripture put together as participationist or participation in Christ, or they call it participation. There's a bunch of different words that they use for it, but it kind of centered around participation. And what, like, so what in general, what does that mean for somebody in the pew who's like, yeah, that's great. But like, how do, how does that differ from a covenantal understanding of scripture? Yeah. Participation is an interesting category in that a lot of theologians in the Eastern church uh, both in the patristic periods, roughly the first, say, 500 years of, of church history after the uh, ascension of Christ, uh, as well as even in the contemporary period, talk about salvation in terms of uh, participation in Christ. What do they mean by that? Well, I don't want to say it's necessarily a, a one-verse doctrine, but what a lot of theologians in the East get this from is, uh, is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, where he says that uh, that, that we become partakers mm. of the divine nature. Uh, and it's this idea of that we, in some sense, participate or, or join to um, the, uh, you know, the person of Christ. 
Now, on the one hand, obviously, that's a very biblical concept. I mean, if you're looking to explain uh, the nature of salvation, well, then certainly that's an appropriate place to do so by talking about uh, what Peter says there in terms of becoming partakers of the divine nature. In the Western church, uh, we've largely talked about this, this uh, concept in terms of union with Christ, the idea that we're united to Christ by faith and through the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Well, in the East, it's a similar concept, but you know, as with any idea, you're going to get a broad range of opinions. And so there are some early church fathers that will talk about participation almost in terms of being fused uh, with Christ. And in a sense where we become divine. But on the other hand, you have other Eastern expressions where they will make uh, a proper distinction uh, between, uh, you know, make a proper distinction between Christ and us and that while Christ indwells us, this doesn't mean that he completely swallows us to the point where we lose our nature or our existence or that somehow we, we become melded with, with Christ. And so uh, in the West, we typically talk about it with union with Christ. In the East, it's in categories of participation. But at least in my own estimation, and at least my own observation, and I'd be curious as to what Dr. Allen thinks in greater detail about this, is that uh, with, with losing track of the broader narrative of the canon of scripture or the broader narrative of redemptive history, what's happened is that I think a number of theologians, both East and West, a lot of contemporary theologians, will approach salvation uh, straight at Christ apart from the context of covenant. Hmm. And uh, on the one hand, I don't want to say that those tendencies are exclusively driven by uh, the ideas of participation. Uh, another added accelerant, I think, to the mix is the idea of individualism, and you see those trends, you know, growing in the in this in the late 18th and the 19th century. The idea that salvation is a is a unique individualized experience, hmm. and and if you are having an individual salvation experience, then you can essentially become united or a partaker of the divine nature in isolation from redemptive history, in isolation from the covenant community or the church. Uh, and so there are these individualizing trends. Hmm. I, think, I think related to that, and this is going to be a broad sweeping statement. Yeah. Uh, so there are obviously going to be necessary qualifications that we would want to make depending upon who we're talking about. But I think that it's, that this, tr this trend towards participation is often, I think, fueled by, like I said, a loss of the, the scriptural narrative, uh, the loss of the unfolding drama of redemption. You know, if I can put it this way, uh, I think that any good picture or piece of artwork uh, is going to have, you know, th the frame of that picture is going to be as, as important as the picture itself. If you have no frame, it lacks uh, a context, something to make it stand out. If you have um, a gaudy frame, then the frame is going to draw too much attention away from the picture itself. And so you need the correct and proper wedding of frame to picture or to painting. And so in this sense, I think we can say that uh, the doctrine of the covenant is the frame uh, of reference, or it's the, the, the frame for the picture of redemption. And there are some theologians these days that essentially just present the, uh, the, 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 the picture of redemption apart from a frame. Hmm. Uh, and uh, as if it's just simply an, an individualized approach to Christ. And so ideally, we always want to maintain both, you know, both the, the frame as well as the picture, and most importantly, it's not necessarily going. We don't want it to be a, a frame of our own creation, but we want it to be uh, the God-given frame uh, that was created and fashioned by the divine artist, by God Himself. And in this case, it's going to be, you know, the doctrine of the covenants. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's helpful. 
I think it goes to also that I feel like a lot of misunderstandings in recent theology, which would uh, is <clears throat> that would misunderstand or not understand covenants at all would be just kind of like there's a there's an epidemic of like biblical illiteracy that kind of is is in the waters. Um, so I think that this chapter helped show defense against that and and show historical classical reformed covenant theology and some of those main names uh that are you know on the forefront of explaining these covenants of theology is you know michael horton mm -hmm. maybe some other names that you could bring up because you know them off the top of your head way better than we do but, <laughs> but uh I think I think that was really helpful. There's also in the chapter, Dr. Allen mentioned some references, some books, some works in in modern times that can kind of help explain these things. But I also want to go to like the very first sentence of this chapter. And you maybe some of your answer could that you just explained, which was very well put, could maybe overlap on this, but why does covenant theology play a rather small role in much contemporary theology as stated as, as it's stated in this very first sentence of this chapter? Yeah, I think that the, the again, the broad observation here, I can illustrate with uh, an anecdote. I remember when I was in seminary that uh, one of the books that my professors carried around was Jürgen Moltmann's The Crucified God. Oh, yeah. And at the time, I just didn't have the uh, opportunity and or time to read it. You know, you know how things go in seminary. <laughs> yeah. You've got syllabi and assigned readings and you have very little time for other stuff. Uh, and so, in fact, one of the things I tell, you know, new graduates is like, go out and read Harry Potter. And they're like, why, <laughs> yeah. why yeah. would I want to read Harry Potter? I said, because you can. Because it's good. Uh, you know, yeah, you have the time now. You can read whatever you want. And so when I got out of seminary, I finally decided, OK, let me run the gauntlet of this book and let me uh, try to understand what so many of my professors were, were touting and, and promoting. And I didn't go to a reform seminary. So, you know, this is, that's a little bit of background information there. And when I read it, I was expecting to be challenged with rigorous exegesis and, you know, really kind of have my dark night of the soul, so to speak, and to think, oh, is this, this is going to really, you know, rattle my cage. Hmm. And when I finished reading it, I thought this you know, uses uh, a pencil shavings worth of scripture from the great oak of the Bible. Uh, and it's so thinly exegeted that I just was totally unfazed by it. And I thought that this was, not, I, I just didn't, I, I couldn't buy the main thesis uh, of the book. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why, you know, in a lot of contemporary theology, you find the absence of covenant is because it's, it's ultimately been removed or taken a significant step back from, from the scriptures or because of higher critical assumptions about who wrote what, and this is an altogether more human book, and there are competing theologies of the latter prophets or, you know, the minor prophets, or there's a theology of Luke, a theology of John, a, a theology of the Yahwehist or the Elohist, because Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible, we end up with this splintered canon where rather than seeing the, the canon of scripture as a cohesive narrative, yes, written over thousands of years by multiple different authors, but with ultimately one divine author, uh, it's the divine author that we're chiefly interested in. And we have to pay attention to those historical details. We don't want to ignore them. Uh, but it's the divine author and the divine author's intention that we want to take note of. And it's Gerhardus Voss who said that God does not come to us abstractly, but rather he comes to us in the school of covenant. And so this is the context in which he comes to us. And so large, large in part, I think a lot of contemporary theology, and, and, and Alan talks about this to a certain extent, uh, you know, in the second page of his essay, where he says that, you know, in a recent systematic theology by Rebecca Chop and Mark Lewis Taylor, Reconstructing Christian Theology, there are all sorts of chapters on, you know, 
human beings, white supremacy and racial justice, anti-Semitism, classicism, ecology, sexism, what they're doing is to me, this echoes Paul Tillich's correlation method of theology, which is to say, what are the pressing questions and let's organize theology based upon the questions that the culture is asking. Now, all things being equal, we don't want to ignore our context, but on the other hand, we should come to the word of God to let the word of God set the agenda for us uh, and not the pressing questions of the culture. And then once we listen to the word of God and we understand its message, then we can engage the world around us to say, okay, well, what, what questions do you have or what issues are there or how can we bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ through this, through the scriptures. And so what that means is, is that we have to let the scriptures themselves set the agenda. And I, I like to tell my students, you can't throw, hardly throw a rock without hitting a covenant in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're, they're all over the place. And I remember reading this one statement by one contemporary Roman Catholic theologian, where he characterized reformed theology and it's, peculiar doctrine of the covenants. Hmm. And I thought peculiar. Well, are you calling the scriptures peculiar? I mean, there's, you know, there's an Adamic covenant. There's a Noahic covenant. There's an Abrahamic covenant. There's a Mosaic covenant, a, a new covenant, a Davidic covenant, and all sorts of other little covenants, you know, sprinkled in and throughout. And so I, I can't imagine that it's peculiar it's only peculiar if you've taken a step back from the scriptures, but if you let the scriptures as the norming norm, uh, you know, guide us in our methodology and in our theology, then covenant is going to be uh, the, one of the, you know, one of the doctrines that shapes our understanding of who God is, because this is the way in which he's revealed himself. So, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And what you were saying before, and obviously reading through, um, Dr. Allen's chapter, it struck me too with the trans and recent theology where it's, it's really not like, like you said, it's really not new theology. They're not like bringing up this new stuff that nobody's ever heard of before. It really comes from some improper, maybe proper understandings of, of Luther and what Luther was talking about or the Finnish school. So there's some stuff that goes through that, but it, it struck me and I wonder what your thoughts are on this kind of overall broad brush, but the, uh, the difference between, if you can explain it, uh, and if I'm if I'm online between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross, there's like we're we're being glorified into Christ. We're becoming, but it, it sounds good. Versus the theology of the cross, the, those don't two they don't sound like two different things. Even though I think they're understood differently, and I think they're being used in a slightly different way now that makes it sound new. Versus no, this is this is old stuff now being brought into a newer context. So if you can kind of talk about that too. Yeah, I think the danger in theology is, is letting either, you know, as Paul calls it to Timothy, letting our itching ears drive the conversation um, or in giving too much credence to the, the, uh, what the world is interested in talking about. Or, you know, and as Paul talks about it in Romans 12, 1 and 2, not letting ourselves be conformed to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I think that, again, we do not want to ignore the world around us. Uh, you know, I, I want to make this clear because my comments could uh, potentially be misinterpreted as, uh, as it's kind of like an indifferent theology that just doesn't care about what's going on in the world. But that being said, what I, I sometimes notice very peculiar things, uh, and I don't know how many people notice these things, but as I'm doing research, I, I take note at times as to when something was published and it strikes me as to the nature of the publication as to what also was going on at the time. Hmm. You know, do a little study if you ever get the opportunity to see how many books and what nature of books were published in the first half of the 1860s. Uh, that's the time during the Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what books and what kind of books were published in the 1940s? So often with so many of these books, they do not seem to take notice that there's a major war going on. Hmm. And we could interpret that in one of two ways. Either 
that the publisher was indifferent and that the author was indifferent to what was going on, or maybe the author and the publisher thought that what was more important and what was actually more useful to the ongoing situation of say, you know, massive warfare on, on, a, on a gargantuan scale is the contents of this book, which contains the teaching of the gospel. Maybe that is of such importance that it overrides whatever concerns we might think we have or what we might need. You know, it's like Steve, Steve Jobs said this uh, about, you know, marketing strategies at Apple. And this is recorded in, in, the, uh, in his biography that was written by Walter Isaacson where he says the customer doesn't know what he or she wants mm. until I tell them. Yep. Yep. And that I think is almost the approach that we have to take with the word of God. We mm. don't know what we want because of our sin twisted, you know, hearts until God tells us what we need and what mm. we, what we are supposed to want. And if we have our moral, our, uh, and our heart compasses align to where God is and where he wants us to be, then everything else will make sense and we can engage the world with the, with the right agenda. And I think that that's a lot of what's going on here, you know, is, you know, the, the running away from covenant and from scripture, let's address these contemporary themes versus approaching God via covenant because that's the way that he's revealed himself. And that's the way that Christ has come to us. So we either come to him in a manner of his choosing and his revelation, or we create an idol of our own making. Yeah. And like you said, it is, it is striking. So if, if you, if you guys, the listeners have the book in front of you, it's mm-hmm. um, 427 and 428. And you realize the difference in the chapters and what's being talked about in these things where it is, it is pretty striking what modern theology, recent theology thinks is the concerns of the Bible because it's reading the Bible through the lens of culture versus reading culture, quote unquote, through the lens of the Bible. So if you guys are, if you guys open up, you'll, you guys will see some of this stuff. You're like, oh, I don't really understand where this stuff is coming from. That's where you start seeing, yeah, okay, is, is the Bible really concerned with creation, environmental crisis, and ecological justice? Maybe as a second, third hand issue, but not as a primary construction of how the Bible is, is used and how the Bible should be understood. So it's, it's a good word to understand. Um, yeah. How are we seeing the Bible? What are we seeing it through? What's, what's not even, what is the context of the Bible? What's our context when we go into the Bible and are we, are we recognizing our context coming to the Bible when we read the Bible and we're looking for the Bible's context as well? That's, that's a good word. Yeah, I think a lot of it is, is, you know, and Dr. Horton talks about this in terms of, you know, his four-volume systematic theology that, that uh, Dr. Allen yep. uh, explains in the latter half of the chapter in terms of, say, the, the-, the major themes of covenant and eschatology. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea of, are we going to try to subsume the Bible into our context, or are we going to submit to the, to, the, to the sovereignty of God and his work of redemption through the spirit and have ourselves taken up into the biblical narrative. Uh, you know, whose narrative will shape our lives? Will we use our narrative to shape the Bible or will the Bible's narrative shape us? Or to put it more apropos or germane to the, the context, will God's covenant shape us uh, and his self-revelation and covenant, or will we reshape God's mm. revelation, you know, in a, fa- in a manner after our own uh, image and likeness? Yeah, that's yeah, good. That, that reminds me of this wonderful quote in the chapter based on what you're just saying. It says, eschatology provides the melody line throughout and covenantal order gives the uh, directional notes along the way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like you you taught with Dr. Horton for for a little bit at Westminster, and so if you can if you can talk about his influence as well on covenant theology, obviously with with Dr. Ellen's chapter in mind, but also you taught with him, so you saw kind of his covenant theology in action. Um, so yeah, how how does he see this 
and how Dr. Allen interacts with him versus recent theological trends? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it may be overly simplified when I say this, but it's, it's a careful attention to, to the Bible. That's as simply as I can state it. You know, we can, we can then add uh, more layers of, of, of observation in this regard to say that, you know, when, you know, when God speaks, um, what's the, in, what, what's, what's, what's the significance of that? It's like, are they bare utterances or are they covenantal utterances? In other words, that when God speaks, his, his commands, his promises are binding. And by binding, it means that his word and his promise and his commands creates a covenantal context. You know, a covenant, I always like this, you know, this definition, it's so simple and it's in the children's catechism. And maybe it's because I'm seven years old at heart that I, I like such things. <laughs> We're all seven years old at heart. <laughs> you know, but uh, it says, what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. Okay. That's, that's I think, the most fundamental definition of a covenant that we can say. Now, based upon the various biblical texts, we might make slight nuances or different emphases. You know, who's making the covenant, et cetera. Uh, what are the conditions of the covenant? What are the promises, et cetera? So we may have to make some slight adjustments to that definition as we go forward. But in that regard, if, if God says, I promise that I'm going to save you, his word is a bond. It's an agreement. And it's agreement that he says, I'm going to fulfill it. You know, or conversely, if he tells Adam, uh, don't eat from this tree, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. When he says that there in Genesis 2.16, again, that command, you know, binds Adam to, to God. It's not like Adam can say, hey, you know what? I'm not interested in this. I think I'm going to go look elsewhere. Thanks, but no thanks. You, we, you know, he can't do that. And it's those types of details that Dr. Horton has, you know, really applied uh, and explained in his, in his books, but especially in that four-volume uh, covenant theology, to say that God comes to us by, by way of covenant, and it's, 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 it, it gives us that context, and it helps us to understand better who God is. It's, it, you know, it's, it's the means by which he draws near to us, and this is some of the language that Dr. Horton will talk about in terms of, you know, is it the God we never meet? Or is, is, is God the, the stranger that we do meet, that he comes to mm. us and he comes to us in a manner of, that, that is comprehensible and understandable, that he speaks to us in, in language that we understand and know, i.e. covenants. Mm. I mean, think of, think of how prevalent covenants are in our own world, you know, business agreements, marriage covenants. He comes to us in a manner that we understand. And when he, he weds that to eschatology, it's the idea that God creates this relationship, but that it's a relationship with a goal. It's a relationship with, with an end point. And, you know, when God told Adam, you know, be fruitful, multiply, fill all the earth and subdue it, that implies that at some point, at least conceivably, Adam would have filled the earth. There would have been a conclusion to his work. And that this is, means that there is an, a finality or an end goal before yeah. sin ever enters into the picture. And so one of the statements that I like that uh, one you know, theologian once said is that God does not rewrite Adam's vocation. He doesn't rewrite his job, mm -hmm. his job description, but rather he sends someone who will faithfully fulfill it. Mm. And that's what's bound up in covenant and eschatology. Mm that where humans failed, God enters into that covenantal arrangement as a man, and in Christ, he fulfills it and brings the, the, the creation and the covenant to its goal, or you can say in more technical language, to its telos, to its purpose, or to its eschatological fulfillment. Um, but uh, yeah, those are some of the themes that I think that Dr. Horton really uh, unpacks with the uh, great, uh, great skill. And 
that, that ultimately, again, it just boils down to a careful attention, you know, to the, to the scriptures and, and unpacking these, these biblical covenants and their significance. Mm, yeah. 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 And I think the best part is that God can't lie or he wouldn't be God. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he cannot break a covenant. So unlike two humans that have a covenant with each other, we could lie or break covenants, but everything that God promises will be fulfilled. And so I think that's just the best thing for assurance when you're looking at covenants and finding your assurance and your justification is just knowing that God, like we break covenants because we're fallen and we sin, but he, he can't, he doesn't break his covenant. So, um, and also kind of rewinding back a few minutes ago, I know uh, Peter was mentioning the the distinction when people are talking about the gospel glory versus cross. And I've heard this the last few weeks, a few times. So I just want to mention that, you know, pr- it sounds like the prosperity gospel that's kind of popular right now mm-hmm. is more of a glory focus. You know, what can God do for me to make me, you know, be really successful here on earth versus the biblical gospel, the cross you know, submitting to Christ, you know, so, and then you're talking about the compass and that reminded me just of imagining recentering ourselves on Christ rather than getting lost in these distractions in the world. So. No, I think that's true. I mean, when we talk about when at least Luther, as he famously talked about the theology of glory in his Heidelberg disputation, it's the idea that people try to approach God as he is, uh, dare I say, naked, in other words, just mm. in terms of his being or his existence. And what Luther always said in, in, in or what he said in that disputation is he said, we can't approach God that way. We can't know him in all of his glory and in his, you know, he's in his eternal existence. We can only know God as he re- has revealed himself and he's revealed himself in the cross of Christ. And so the theologian of the cross beholds God through the lens of the cross. And I think that the reformed version of that, that same truth, uh, is to say that we behold him through his self-revelation in Christ and covenant. And that's more or less what Francis Turretin says in his institutes. Mm. And so I don't think that Luther and Turretin are talking about two different things. They're just two different varied expressions as to how we, you know, we would, we would talk about those realities. And so I think we can cross pollinate Luther and with Turretin and say that, yeah, the theology of the cross is the theology of the covenants, because what is it that Christ did on the cross, but bear, he bore the curse, what curse, the curse of the covenant. And so these are, these are mutually informative uh, ideas in scripture and in no way, uh, you know, contradictory. And so we can say that Luther and Turretin are speaking of the same truth. It's the same coin, just on different sides of the coin. Yeah, that's, that's, um, I mean, that's good to see with kind of the continuity between this. And now before, before we end this, this episode, cause there's, there's another guy who's talked about a little bit, John Webster, Mm-hmm. And my assumption is most people don't know who that is. Mm-hmm. They've probably heard of Dr. Horton or a couple other of these professors or authors. But if you can give a, a brief description as to who John Webster is and why he's an important theologian, at least in, in recent theological trends as it relates to covenant. Yeah. I mean, the big broad story. Well, first, let me back up and say that I would want to defer all serious kind of reflection <laughs> on John Webster to Dr. Allen. Because, yeah, he wrote a, a big volume on it. Yeah, yeah. He, he's very, very familiar with this stuff. I have benefited from a number of his writings, but I'm certainly not an expert. Totally. Okay, so that being said, um, you know, a couple of quick big observations about him. He was initially a Bardian scholar uh, and, uh, and kind of more into in the Bardian camp. But aside from that, what happened is that he began reading classic theology or more of it. And in particular, a lot of Thomas Aquinas, as well as uh, a lot of John Owen in particular, Mm -hmm. I think he was really influenced by a lot of uh, John Owen's theology. And so he began, uh, he moved away from Bardianism to what's more, you know, more, more classic theological expression. And so he really made 
the, the theme of the covenants, something that was a, uh, a, a chief idea that appears in his theology. You know, the sad thing about John Webster, of course, is that he died before uh, he was able really to, to write uh, a lot of what he was planning to do in, in, in a systematic mm-hmm. theology. And the other, uh, you know, problem with his, his writing, dare I say it, is that he's got great stuff, but it's expensive as all get out because it's, you know, the publisher, you know, charges really expensive prices for this stuff. And so for a lot of people, it's kind of inaccessible just because uh. it's, it's economically out of reach for the average person. <laughs> yeah. But mm. uh, if, if you got a library nearby, maybe you can, you know, That's check right. it out or yep. something like that. Uh, but or find a number of his writings online. But I think that's what happened is that he picked up a lot of these classic theological concepts such as covenant, and he realized their their biblically uh, rich uh, roots and nature. And so he employed them because ultimately he's the one that one of the people in the contemporary period that has talked so, uh, uh, I think, both beautifully and convictingly about the nature of theology as uh, as listening to scripture and submitting to to the biblical text, you know, and so for that reason, uh, he um, you know he he he's 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 made a significant contribution, and it'll be interesting to see how how history uh, plays with that mm. and how history you know it's kind of like you never know what history or more specifically God's providence will do with a theologian. Uh, sometimes, you know, they, they get buried beneath the sands of, of the hourglass and other, and then are later rediscovered uh, generations later. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how, how his, um, how his theology uh, plays out, but he's one who is very conversant with contemporary theology, but at the same time with classic theology. So, that makes him a very, I think, uh, he's worthwhile to, you know, if, you know, there's w- authors that you can bypass, but other authors that are w- worth the time. And he's mm. one of the ones that's worth the time and the investment. Mm. Yeah. And I've been waiting for a great episode and topic to play this clip. And I think it's very relevant. What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. Yeah. R.C. Sproul. Love Sproul. (laughs) I I think what I have to do, though, in order to have greater authority when I speak, because my I'm often mistaken for a woman on the phone, which is, you know, very (laughs) really huge huge blow to my self-esteem. So if I take up a a two-pack-a-day cigarette smoking habit, you know, for a calculated period of time, maybe my voice will get more, more gravelly. Uh, and, and then I'll sound more authoritative. That's like right. Dr. You got to take up the, the Dr. Horton challenge, and just smoke who knows how many cigars every single day. Yeah. But see, that's the, the big problem with all of that is that I, I like working out too much and I don't want to be wheezing out there. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. Dying, people, so. people are asking me by the fireplace, Peter, why don't you smoke? I was like, because I like my lungs. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so we'll see, but, uh, so maybe I'll just have to do with my woman's voice and, and, and move on. Uh, well, do, well, do your interviews in the morning. That's when people's voices seem to be a little, I've noticed on our interviews when we do morning episodes, I'm like, man, my voice sounds way like deeper and raspier and manly. manly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Cool. I mean, that's, I feel like we've we've covered pretty much majority kind of flying over the chapter, getting the, the big points. I don't know if anything that you wanted to add, Nick, or if you wanted to add Dr. Fesco on just your average layperson. How do they understand? Like what maybe my, my last question was, what, why should this matter for your average person sitting in the pews saying, OK, that's great. You're talking about recent theology and th- these recent trends. But does this even affect me in my day to day life? Does this even affect the preaching? Like how how should your average person view some of these things? Yeah, I think that while the average person may not read some of the works that uh, that Dr. Allen mentions, or perhaps many of the works that Dr. Allen mentions, at the same time, to read his chapter carefully and to think about what he discusses there, 
I think is so important because while you may not read some of these works, there's a possibility that maybe your pastor might, or, you know, or, or, or a seminary professor might, and the seminary professor might speak of some of these ideas or things or themes to students, and then students pick them up, and then the students become a pastor. And so I don't want to say that you want to sit in the pew with, a, a, you know, a, a hermeneutic of suspicion where you don't trust anything that your pastor says, but at the same time, you know, the scriptures uh, uh, exhort us to be good Bereans and to always hold the scriptures uh, up to the preaching of the word and, our, you know, and making sure that we're reading the word of God in a manner consistent with how itself, how it talks about itself and what it reveals about itself. And so to be aware of these trends, I think, and to, to, to listen to the, the narrative of scripture and to always take account of the context to which we receive scripture is, uh, is a vital, I think, uh, again, a, a, a vital uh, compass for us so that we can know where true north rests and we can always find our way out of the woods if we find ourselves in the woods of theological liberalism uh, either on purpose or by accident, we can find our way out. And in that respect, I think Dr. Allen's chapter, I think is immense, immensely useful. But then of mm -hmm. course, for seminary students uh, who may have to engage many of these issues, as well as pastors, I think it's also immensely useful. They can use it as a, as a roadmap uh, mm -hmm. to a number of the, the theological trends that are unfolding in our own day. And then hopefully that can tune them into maybe some of the work, say, of John Webster or Dr. Horton that uh, they may have been unaware of, and they can grow in that way by studying more. Yeah. Yeah, I think, too, is what's helpful about uh, modern theologians like Dr. Horton is just understanding what is dogmatic, you know, what, and I think that's just helpful for people to there's a lot of, you know, opinions one way or another on things, but when we get to the Bible and get down to it, what are dogmatic views built based on biblical truth? So maybe as a way to kind of wrap up this episode, could you kind of explain in a concise way some of these dogmatic truths that we need to really hold by no matter what the culture looks like? there's a sense in which we want to say that uh, doctrine is the church's teaching. Dogmas are, in a sense, we can say settled truths. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the, you know, some of the settled truths, for example, is the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, you know, we're, 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 just no matter what happens, we can't rewrite the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, because I think that, at least historically speaking, it's, it's grounded and firmly rooted in scripture. And we can say that about a number of the church's teachings, although some of them may be debated, obviously, say between Roman Catholic and Protestant. Uh, but at the same time, I think that it's important that we recognize the enduring nature of the scriptures and, and, and its teaching, as well as the church's dogmas, so that we don't get blown about by the winds of culture and I forget the name of the, of the theologian that said it, but it, he said, um, he who marries the spirit of the age uh, will become a widow in the next, mm. Mm. Uh, in the next age. And I think that that's so true. You know, there's so much faddish theology uh, that, you know, that will just, that just eventually will fall by the wayside. I mean, there, there are libraries filled with books that people never check out or read because it's ultimately faddish. And it's, it's been, it was married to the spirit of the age. Whereas you find that the theology, you know, like I'm in a reading group, reading Augustine's City of God, you know, or you read the classic covenant theology and it, it, it endures. It endures because yep. it, is, it is closely grounded to the scriptures. And so every time that you stay close to the scriptures, you're going to be using something, learning something, and standing upon something that endures it's a rock. And just because it's a rock doesn't mean that the storms won't hit it. And the storms of culture may hit the rock, but the rock will remain firm 
and the storms will not move it. Uh, and so that's why I think we have to stick with those, those themes, such as the doctrine of the covenant. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah. I, I think it's a, a great way to, to end chapter 20. So thanks. Thanks for talking about a chapter that you didn't write. It was a, <laughs> it was a, so yeah, it was a great, maybe, maybe, yeah, just tell Dr. Allen, I know he's not at your campus, tell him to get a Twitter and then maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll find him one day again to, to have him on the show. All right. Sounds good. We'll do. I'll let him know that I, that I talked about him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure having you. Sounds good. Glad to be with you guys. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world and how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, a specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes, and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep, all for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.